God is good. Amen. Tonight, if you'd pull out your Bibles, your swords, God's word and turn to Joshua chapter eight, we're going to pick up in verse 21. And now for those of you, how many of you were here when we had our power outage? Raise your hand. Okay, so pretty good chunky. So I know I know exactly how much to reiterate and how much to not reiterate tonight because we, we covered a little chunk of what uh, I had intended to c- cover in this study, but uh, certainly not all of it, and, and none of the book of Joshua did we cover during that time. So uh, tonight we're going to finish up here in chapter 8, and we'll go down through verse 35, of course. And so uh, the results of new beginnings. Uh, how many of you are thankful that God allows do-overs? I got... I'm putting a leg up. I, if I could not use my feet, I would put both of them up as well. Yeah, man, am I thankful for the fact that God allows us to, to do do-overs. That, that in all of our crazy living, our outright disobedience, the dumb things that we do, the insane things we say, the messes we get ourselves into, the number of times. How many of you have ever done something that you knew the Lord didn't want you to do? I have. I think anybody that's honest that's walked with the Lord for more than eight minutes, you know, if you accept the Lord, it takes you that long to figure out, well, I can sin now. But but we do things sometimes knowingly, sometimes kind of on the fringe of knowingly, sometimes a little bit even unknowingly. Maybe you didn't know that God's word said something that it says and you engaged in something and kind of got yourself in a little bit of a snafu. But uh, in this case, we, we find the children of Israel now kind of turning back around the way they should go. And so they're going to see the result uh, of a new beginning. What repentance gets us in the life of a believer. What it did for the children of Israel as we continue now here uh, in the 8th chapter of the book of Joshua. And Let's just pray and ask God to speak to us through his word, uh, which he always does. Amen. Father, we thank you for this time tonight. Lord, thank you for our kids and just the wonder that VBS has already been this week. Thank you for all that have helped make it possible. Lord, just dozens of volunteers who faithfully come and give their time and their talent and even their treasure, Lord, to minister to our children. We're so grateful for them. Pray that you'd bless each one of them. If they're home sleeping tonight, God, it's well-deserved. It's been busy. Pray that for those of us that are here tonight, uh, that you'd bless us with your presence by your spirit and speak to us through the power of your word. Lord, we give you this time and ask now that you would use it as you see fit. And we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen. Verse 21, And now when Joshua and all of Israel uh, saw that the ambush had taken the city and that the smoke of the city ascended, they turned back and struck down the men of Ai. Now, remember, they had, they had lost the first battle at Ai. They had now come back and fought the second battle of Ai. They had listened to God. They had done what God had asked them to do. And the first result that we see is that their old enemy is defeated. How many of you would like your old enemies defeated in your life? There's a very practical lesson in this chapter. Because when we do God's things, God's way, when we seek the will of the Lord, And when we ask of him and inquire of him, and then we do what he tells us to do, old enemies get defeated. And of course, we could all sit here and run through the list of old enemies in our lives. 
For many, it's drugs. For many, it's alcohol. For many, it's relationships. For some, it's money. For very often, it can be power. It can be passion. It can be possessions. There are all kinds of old enemies in our lives that would like to come back and would like to gain uh, a foothold in our lives. And if we will stay on that victorious path of hearing the word of the Lord and doing what God says, then old enemies get defeated. They're taken out. They're knocked down. They're buried. They're done. They're over with. And in fact, your Bible says that if we resist the devil, he will flee. Do you realize that? You have that kind of power in your life available to you, but there is a contingency. You must be obedient. You cannot be disobedient and think that you are going to gain the same victory. You must be obedient to see that type of victorious living. And so as we move forward in the remainder of this chapter, keep that in mind because we're going to see something rather interesting towards the end of the chapter. They see the smoke of the city. Uh, they, they stop fleeing and here they are. They're kind of, they're kind of almost in that same mode they were the first time. Man, let's get out of here. Let's see what's going to happen. And they turn around. Look, the city's on fire. Let's turn around. The Jewish soldiers had left. Uh, after that, they joined back into the battle. And now the enemy is caught between two armies. It's another lesson here. The, the enemy is, is going to be much weaker in your life when you have friends that are with you in the battle. You're going to notice how God, in his sovereign power, in his wonderful might, says, okay, I want part of the army over here, and I want part of the army over there. You remember what the Apostle Paul said, for the eye can't see to the hand, I have no need of you, for we are the one body in Christ Jesus, and many members, and we don't all have the same function. And you kind of see that here in this particular passage of Scripture. Part of them went and hid behind the city, right? They're, they're back there kind of stealthing it out. During VBS, we, you know... Adam, the, the costumes are awesome. You know, Alex comes in and he's dressed like a frilled lizard, okay? And he's back there in the orange crowd. You're like, you can't hardly see him. God uses all of those different gifts and skills and talents. Everyone's got at least a gift that they can offer up to the Lord. Now, very often I see people walking into feet because they, they have not yet researched in their spiritual life what their gifting is. And get out there and use it. But we need each other. And in this case, they had divided themselves up. Now, I don't know about you, but when I face, an, uh, uh, normally, when I face an enemy, I kind of think that superior might uh, on, on one front is better than inferior might on two fronts. But in this case, God had spoken. He said, look, I want some of you to go here and some of you to go there. And I'm going to give you a completely different battle plan than I gave you at Jericho. When we listen to the Lord... And we, we do what God's called us to do. And it's so important to get this lesson. Because not everyone in this room has been called to be the pastor of this church. Thank goodness, amen. I don't get along with me. Can you imagine if we were all trying to do the same thing? Sometimes I argue with me. I get in my own face. I look in the mirror like you. We don't all have the same gift, amen. Adam's laughing because he knows exactly what I'm saying. He pulls some of those people over that argue with themselves while they're driving. You you see, you get the picture here. We don't all have the same gifts. We don't all have the same talents. 
We aren't all supposed to be in the same place at the same time. It makes for a very weak church when everybody's trying to do the same job. Matter of fact, I can tell you with VBS, it ain't happening. If it's all left up to my wonderful, beautiful bride, Connie. You know, she plans it, she maps it out, she makes sure everything's here, but she can't go do crafts and then go over and do the games and then go over and do the food and then come back in here and tell the story and then uh, play the video. We need all those gifts and talents working in the place that God's called them to and every last one of them is important. Sometimes we don't think of that. It's hard to figure out why gummy bears are important. But to kids, gummy bears are important. Amen? Kendall says amen to gummy bears being important. You you see, God wants to cut down your enemies. God wants to lay them low. But He wants you doing your part, and He wants everybody else in the body of Christ doing their part. And then it says in verse 22, And then others came out of the city against them, and so they were caught in the midst of Israel, some on the side and some on that side, and they struck them down so they did not let any one of them escape. Now, now we kind of have a tough time with that passage because it does kind of sound like the slaughter of a whole bunch of people. And, and that's, a, that's a tough thing. It's hard for us to kind of rationalize that type of behavior. But this was the command of the Lord. These people were so toxic to the world. Because God doesn't just obliterate people because he can. If that happens, it's because there's a purpose and a reason behind it. And so in this case, these people that lived in AI would would have, again, raised themselves up and come after the children of Israel. And God wanted the enemy defeated and done. And so God takes an extreme measure. And so when we think about it, The judgment of God falls upon the wicked. You don't want to be on that side. And we gotta pick, we gotta pick a side, amen? As you live your life on this earth, you have to choose which side you want to be on. God's not gonna force you to be on His side, and He's not gonna exclude you from being on the other side. So when you think about it, you gotta choose. And once you choose, you're aligning yourself either with the Lord of hosts. Remember, he came back and he spoke to him in chapter 7. The Lord of the arm, or the Lord of the host of the armies of God. You can either be on that side or you can be on the other side. There's two sides. There's really no middle ground. You know, when we, when we ended the, the fighting in South Korea, we created what's called the demilitarized zone there in the 38th parallel. That's an area that there's not supposed to be any conflict. Is that actually true? It's not actually true. Matter of fact, we have 50,000 U.S. soldiers stationed in South Korea right now because there isn't, there is no middle ground. There isn't any middle ground in real war, and there's certainly no middle ground in spiritual war. You're on one side or the other. The only thing that that DMZ does is keep them a little further apart so they got to lob larger bombs. That's it. That's all it does. The second thing that we see here is old rulers are defeated. Anybody want the old rulers of your life defeated? Because you can have old enemies. That's things that were in your life that you don't want in your life. But there's someone behind those things that's motivating them and keeping them going. We call him the God of this age. Amen? Think about it. 
There is a, there is a real ruler of this world. And I'm not talking about God lacking sovereignty. I'm talking about him having relinquished for a period of time called the age of Gentiles, this day that we live in, the age of grace, where God has allowed the enemy to rule on this earth to a degree. He's on a leash. God controls that leash. But if you look at the world, it's very clear. Look at what's going on in Israel right now. You talk about insanity of insanities. Look at what's going on in Ukraine right now. You talk about, does anything about that have anything to do with a, with a just God? A bunch of nutbags with, with an SM-11 missile shooting down a passenger jet. If that's not motivated by Satan, I don't know what is. If taking innocent women and children and putting them next to your rocket launchers isn't of Satan, I don't know what is. For all the talk about Israel's superiority militarily, the only reason that there are civilian casualties right now is because Hamas, which is a terrorist organization according to the United States government, is taking missiles and putting them inside of mosques. And if you don't believe that, Google it on the Internet, and when the missile hits the mosque, watch the secondary explosions. Not the explosion from the bomb, the explosion from the rockets inside the mosque. Somebody ever tells you that we're going to store missiles inside this church, I can tell you it ain't happening. Because that would put every last one of you at risk, every child that comes here at risk. Okay, that's satanic. That is satanic. There is a ruler of this present age, according to your Bible. Verse 23, But the king of Ai they took alive, and they brought him to Joshua. And it came to pass when Israel had made an end of the slaying of all of the inhabitants of Ai in the field, and in the wilderness they pursued them, and when they had fallen by the edge of the sword until they were consumed, that all of the Israelites then returned to Ai and struck it with the edge of the sword. They finished the job. And again, brutal, barbaric, there's no way around it. God was not playing games. These people were the arch enemy of God. Okay? God had told them to do this. And, and I don't want to get into a whole long treatise on a just war or an unjust war or a war that's ordained of God or a war that's not ordained of God, but you can clearly see that God is behind this particular battle, that God himself had spoken what they were supposed to do. This was during a time of the Old Testament when there was no grace available in the sense that we now know it. Uh, grace wouldn't come until Christ died on the cross, and so they're still living under the law, and under the law, these people had to go. And so it was that all who fell that day, both men and women, were 12,000, all of the people of Ai. Horrific, horrific battle. For Joshua did not draw back his hand, which with he outstretched the spear until they had utterly destroyed all of the inhabitants of Ai. Remember, as long as he held up the spear, they were to continue to march forward. That was directed by the Lord. He says, as long as this is up, you guys go forward. Only the livestock and the spoil of that city that Israel took as booty for themselves. 
according to the word of the Lord, which he had commanded to Joshua. And so Joshua burned Ai and made it a heap forever, a desolation. And the king of Ai, he hanged on a tree until evening. And as soon as the sun was down, Joshua commanded that they should take down his corpse and take it down from the tree and cast it at the entrance of the gate of the city and raise up over it a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Joshua had killed this king and then commanded that his corpse be humiliated, basically, by putting it on a tree. Do you remember what the Old Testament says about he who is hanged on a tree? Cursed is he who is hanged on a tree. Jesus took the curse of sin and its penalty, death upon himself. He bore the curse for us. At this time, these people were willing to try and do it their own way, and they were fighting God. And it's the same picture that if you and I choose not to receive Christ as Savior, we one day will take the same curse upon ourselves, and we will have to pay for our own wrongdoing. And in this case, the king paid for his wrongdoing. This old uh, ruler is defeated. Uh, the previous heap of stones that was raised up was a memorial to Achan's sin, God, look at this, folks. God is serious about sin. God is serious about sin. I think in our world today, we have an awful lot of people who are not serious about sin. We have a lot of Christians who aren't serious about sin. And that's the reason that the ruler of this this age is winning so many battles. I believe people are not serious about sin. And because they're not serious about sin, the enemy is able to rule in their life and then in the circumstances that they're involved in. And so when we do things that are counter to God's word, counter to God's will, and counter to God's ways, we set up for the ruler of this world to be able to do whatever he wants. And so the picture here is that if you want total victory in your life, then you've got to deal with your enemies. And you have to deal with the enemy's leader, Satan himself. Now, am I telling you that you all need to go out and you know see if you can hunt down Satan and, and do battle with him? No, I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is he has a system. It is our world system. He has a religion. It's called secular humanism. And he's the leader of it. One day he's going to have a world religion. He's also going to have a one world government. And he's going to have a one world monetary system. And at some point in time, the the church is going to have to say, look, I've got one leader and his name is Jesus. And I'm going to follow him. If you want the other ruler dead, you've got to follow the leader. We have to obey the word. This is total victory on the part of the children of Israel. Satan himself, in this case, was represented by the king of Ai, and he was defeated, period. He was put down. Now, we happen to know that in Christ Jesus, one day, the real enemy behind all of this evil is going to be put down. Amen? Your Bible says that very clearly, by the way. One day, he's going to be bound up in chains and tossed into the bottomless pit. Right now, he's still running around. Right now, he's still influencing people. Right now, he's still stirring up trouble all over the globe. He's inventing new religions. He's causing all kinds of trouble all over the world. And so if you want the old ruler defeated, 
you got to stay on the side of the new ruler. Remember what we were talking about in the book of Colossians, the book of Ephesians, that you have to put off the old man, and you got to put on the new man? you you got the old ruler, and you got the new ruler, and you got to choose which one you're going to serve, which army you're going to be in. One of the problems that we're having right now in our world is there are basically undeclared combatants in most of these battles. It used to be, you go back to, back to colonial times, I mean, the British wore red suits and marched in line. You knew who was a Brit, you know? Satan doesn't work that way. He has wolves amongst the sheep. He's got people speaking Christianese who are actually enemy combatants. They're seeking whom they may destroy, because that's what their boss does. They're, they're like these guys in Ukraine. They, they don't even wear a uniform. They kind of sort of have on some camo and a little bit of street clothes. One minute they're speaking in, in some form of Russian dialect. The next minute they're speaking in Farsi. They're not declared. Eh, I'm just going to, whoever's winning, that's whose side I'm going to be on. There are a lot of Christians exactly like that. They're undeclared. Well, you know, when it suits me, I'll just do what the, the enemy is doing because that seems like it's more fun. Family of God, you've got to pick a side. And if you pick a side, then you're going to have the next thing happen to you because the promises of the promised land are secured in obedience. Amen? The promises of the promised land have always been secured in obedience. They are not secured in disobedience. And we're going to see that in technicolor at the end of this chapter. Okay? If you want the blessings of God, if I want the blessings of God, if we want it for our church, if we want it for our town, if we want it for our state, if we want it for our nation, the blessings of God are secured in obedience to God. We've got to do things His way. One of the reasons the church, I believe, is having so little impact in the world that we're in right now is the church looks exactly like the world. The church is almost an undeclared combatant. It's like, well, we're going to kind of do this the world's way. And we'll do the, you know, we like the salvation by grace and through faith thing. That's, that's pretty cool. We like that. We'll cling to that. But this whole thing, staying married, nah, don't like that. This whole thing about holy living, mm, not so much. You've got to declare your side. You've got to declare your side. And you've got to put the uniform on. And in our case, praise God, it's the righteousness of Jesus Christ himself. Amen? You've got to put the uniform on. And you've got to wear it proudly. Now, I don't know how many of you are like this, but when I, you know, I was watching yesterday as President Obama was putting another Congressional Medal of Honor on, a, on another soldier, I'm sitting there watching this, and I'm going, I'm just like weeping. There's, there's a level of pride in looking at someone who said, you know what, I will pay the price. Whatever it is, I'll pay the price. I will consider my fellow soldiers above my own life, and I will run into harm's way for them. That's what real Christians are supposed to be like. We're supposed to be... Jesus Medal of Honor winners, okay? We're supposed to be running towards the fight, 
not running away from the fight. We're supposed to be victorious in the fight, not defeated in the fight. We are supposed to be on Christ's side, not somewhere in the DMZ trying to figure out, well, which side do I want to go on? Declare your allegiance. Fight the fight. People saw in this particular case that not one word of God's promise had failed. And the disgrace and the defeat that was caused by Achan and his sin was now obliterated by victory in Jesus. Victory in the Lord. Victory in clinging to God's word and doing exactly what God said. And because of that, there was a new commitment. Joshua builds an altar. After all of this Time goes by. Sometime during the victory, Joshua led the people 30 miles north to Shechem. Now, we're not told when. If you look at Israel today, I'll actually show you a picture here in a little bit, but if you look at that area of the world today, it's a land basically of rolling hills and valleys and a a plain. And as they marched that 30 miles north, remember, this is a large, substantial group of people And if you know anything about your Bible, and you know anything about Bible places, Shechem was the place that also Abraham dwelt. Amen? Abraham dwelt at Shechem. He built his altar at Shechem. And at Shechem there are two mountains, and we'll get to them in a moment. Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. They are there to this day. And there is a temple on one, and there is an altar on the other one. Still there. Matter of fact, Joshua's altar they believe they have found. And so here the nation obeys exactly what God had commanded them to do through Moses in his farewell address back in Deuteronomy chapter 27, which we looked at in partial uh, last time we were here in the book of Joshua. And so Joshua interrupts his military activities to give Israel the opportunity to make a new commitment to the Lord. So important is, is this trait in our own lives. Life is busy, amen? If your life's not busy enough, come to VBS. We'll make your life busy. Okay, there's a lot of stuff going on in life. And, and of course, I'm joking with you. I know that most of you have very busy lives. But is your life so busy that you can't build an altar to the Lord? Is your life so filled with stuff? In this case, it was a military conquest. But is your life so full of stuff? Is it so full of career Is it so full of the other things that come into our lives? And again, they're important things. I'm not saying they're not important. But is your life so full of other stuff that you cannot build an altar unto the Lord? And again, throughout Scripture, an altar was a picture of the type of our heart. It's where we worship the Lord. Amen? I worship the Lord in spirit and in truth, and it happens in my heart, not just my head. And certainly not just in my hands and feet, wherever I can walk and whatever I can do. And so Joshua stops. Now, I don't know about you, but if I've got the enemy on the run, and I just wiped out AI, remember, they were given all the land. This sounds like, to me, a really good time in my flesh to go take care of the rest of the inhabitants of the land. Amen? Think about it for a second. In a practical sense, think about where they are. They have wiped out Jericho. They have now wiped out AI to strategic military outposts, large centers of population that were absolutely troubling to them. They could have just gone right on and just kept on going. 
That's a very, very unwise thing to do in your spiritual life. When you don't take time to stop and worship the Lord, and you don't take time to stop and read God's Word, and you don't take time to stop and pray, and you don't take time to spend time with God, I guarantee you're headed for a defeat. I guarantee it. I've experienced it myself. I'm on some, you know, we're, oh, God, look at what we're doing for you. It's, you know, it's all the stuff, and you're just booking it for Jesus, and then all of a sudden you're running with your tail between your legs looking for somebody that can now console you because you have just gotten whooped. Okay. Principle is here, after every victory, take time to worship the Lord. After every defeat, take time to worship the Lord. Remember, they did that previously. So every time something happens in your life, take time to worship the Lord. It's kind of a picture of how we treat church. Amen? I go through my work week, I worship the Lord. I go through the rest of my work week, I worship the Lord. I spend devotional time with God. I pray. I do all those things. God is a part of my life that is absolutely tangible. Chuck Swindoll is is credited with the saying, but I like it. How much of the body of Christ would be no different if they lost Jesus? Think about it. Why? Because a lot of the body of Christ does not worship him. A lot of the body of Christ is just walking around in name only. And I know you've met some of those people. They are name-only Christians. They say they're a Christian, but not one thing in their life says that they are dedicated to Jesus Christ. They don't go to church ever. You met them? They don't even go on Christmas and Easter. They're not the two times a year people. Well, you know, I don't really need to go to church. You know, I'm pretty holy. I got my own church. Matter of fact, no church is good enough for me because I'm more holy than there. You've met them, haven't you? I have. I've met people that have told me they don't go to church because there's no church that's good enough. And that every church is filled with hypocrites. Well, duh. That's why we need Jesus. Joshua built an altar. And now Joshua built an altar, it says in verse 30. Unto the Lord God of Israel on Mount Ebal. And as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded the children of Israel, as was written in the book of the law of the Moses, an altar of whole stones. Remember what we talked about in our little power outage devotion. I'll recover, I'll recover some of that for you. Over which no man had wielded an iron tool. And they offered it and burn offerings to the Lord, and sacrificed in peace offerings. Abraham had built in Genesis chapter 12, you can read it if you want to, chapter 12, verses 6 and 7, Abraham builds an altar unto the Lord. Jacob lived there for a short time. By the time you get to the latter portions of the book of Genesis, chapter 33 and chapter 34, you're going to find out Jacob lived at Shechem. He had an altar there. Joshua's altar is up on the mountain above Shechem. Shechem sits in a valley plain directly below these two mountains, Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim. And interestingly enough, 
Joshua's altar is built on Mount Ebal, which we're going to find out is the Mount of Cursing. And some people look at this passage and they wrongly interpret it. And it almost seems as though, you know, no one should ever go to Mount Ebal. Why would anybody go to the Mount of Cursing? And we'll get to that in a little bit. But Mount Ebal is just as important as Mount Gerizim. And I would ask you to hang on to that thought for a little while. And so as Joshua builds this altar, he's being obedient to the very command of the Lord in Exodus chapter 20. God had commanded them, look, don't build an altar made out of stuff that you made. Because we carve stuff the way we want it. Amen? You can see that. And again, I'm not being critical. I'm not criticizing anyone. I'm not trying to draw, you know, anyone's faults out and expose, you know, some, you know, fault of some denominational church. But if you look at the church today, you're going to find an awful lot of stones that have been carved with an iron tool. There's not a single, there's not a single passage that says I need to confess my sins before a priest so they can be forgiven. Not one. There is not a single passage that says your soul is going to go to purgatory. Not one. There's not a single passage that says your soul is going to go to sleep. There's not a single passage that says you need to be baptized to be saved. You get what I'm saying? Those are iron tools chiseled on the character of God so that that group of people seems to have some type of claim and control over God. you got to worship Him our way. And in this day and age, they actually had competing altars. And so you'd have the altar of Joshua over here, and you might have the altar of Caleb over there, and the altar of Samuel over there, and somebody else would put an altar over here, and then it incorporates some little human thing that was kind of the attraction. And quite frankly, there are some things about Calvary Chapel that have kind of become altar stones as well. There's some things that we've chiseled. There, there's some things that we could kind of look at. Well, you know, you can't have children in the sanctuary. Find that one in your Bible. Okay, Just being honest. You ain't going to find it. It's not there. That is an iron tool. Is it necessarily inherently wrong? No. But when you start making it a dictum, when you start telling people, well, you know, you just can't come to this church if you want to bring your, ch- your children into the sanctuary, I think you've got an iron tool in your hand. I think you've got to be really careful. Now, would I be anything else? No way on this earth. I'm delighted to be a Calvary Chapel pastor. wouldn't be anything else. And the reason I said that is so everyone can look me in the nose and go, Jeff's not picking on anybody in particular. There are some things about us that we could do better. There are some things about us, me personally, where I've kind of, you know, sometimes when I'm talking to people and they're in the throes of some horrible marriage thing, 
Man, is there a temptation to just side with the person who's been wronged. That's an iron tool. Because my Bible tells me that there is nothing that can't be forgiven. Not a single thing and that God hates divorce. See, I could take out my iron tool. Well, if I was married to that idiot, I'd divorce him too. It'd be real easy to get out that tool. Well, you know, if I was married to her, you know, I don't what, what took you so long? I could get out my iron tool. Go, well, man, the stuff you put up with. I told you I was going to rehash this a little bit because it's really important to the story. It's important to this particular aspect of building this altar. You see, we're to make that altar a representation of Christ, a representation of God's character, his principles, and then we practice what it is that he is. We don't get to to make him the way we want him. Because if we did, you'd end up with what we've got in the world today. And that's all these Crazy cults. It's nuts. Well, you know, God's a man just like us, flesh and bone. Mormons believe that. Mormons believe that. That Elohim is a physical being. He dwells on his own planet with all of his spirit wives. That's what he believed. I'm pretty sure my Bible says that there is exactly one God and he exists in three persons. Amen? So, an iron tool. Well, I kind of like it. You know what? I'd like to have my own planet. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Unless you're a lady. Unless you happen to be a woman. Then that whole thing doesn't work out so well for you. You get to stay perpetually pregnant for the rest of eternity. I'm pretty sure you ladies are going, ain't signing up for that. Not happening. It's an iron tool. Let's just make him what we want. So you put a bunch of old codger, old men, misogynists into some religious mode, and they come up with, we all get to inherit planets, and you get to come with us as long as you're our celestial wives, and you're tied to us through a ceremony inside the temple. Iron tool? Your Bible does not say that. That's why it says you shall write these things on these stones as whole stones, unchanged, unaltered. The rock who is Jesus is the answer to all this. Amen? We're just little pebbles in all of this. And sometimes, you know, you look at this this whole command. It's it, Look, Jesus is Jesus. God is God, and his word says, I, the Lord, change not. Amen? Okay, so if God doesn't change, and he wants us to build an altar to him, the altar should be him. Amen? Not what we think. And so he says, look, just worship me as I am. And as the church, are we not called the temple of living stones? Amen? Isn't that who we are? You know why that is? Because we're supposed to be imitations of the unchiseled real rock. We then are living stones cut from the real stone 
by him, not made with hands, remember that, for ultimately we have a building in heaven not made with human hands. So we're living stones that are created by him to look like him, talk like him, act like him, be like him. He uses all of our little funny personality characteristics and quirks and traits. He can use a knucklehead like me. He can use all of you. We're not talking about your human characteristics being invaluable. We're talking about what's supposed to happen is the character of Christ takes and overshadows absolutely everything that we are, all that we do, all that we say. So that when someone sees you and talks to you, sees me, talks to me, talks to somebody about church, what they come up with is the unchiseled stone that is Jesus Christ, the rock. That's what he was getting at. He's the creator. We're the creation. We're little pebbles. We're, we're created in his glorious image in Christ Jesus. Amen? He has made us anew in Christ Jesus. We're this new creation in Christ. When you accepted him, you bowed before the altar. Amen? That's what happened. You bowed your knee before the King of kings and the Lord of lords and said, it is no longer I who live, it is Christ who lives in me. Joshua's modeling that for us. Matter of fact, the prophet Isaiah added to this in, in Isaiah chapter 28. He said, look, behold, I lay a stone, the chief cornerstone, elect, it's precious. And he who believes on him, Isaiah said this, he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. There in Isaiah 28. He says, one day there's going to be a chief cornerstone, a rock, and you're going to believe in him, and when you believe in him, nothing can put you to shame. Why? Because that rock is Christ. That rock is unchanged. That rock is the Lord himself. That's why when you give your life to Christ, or, you know, as we, we all know, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, we're by grace, amen? No human work is added to it, amen? Okay? You're saved by grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, Amen? Nothing added to it. There's no other secret ingredient. There's no specific church. There's no translation of the Bible. You know, well, you know, I'm a King James only guy. I've had people come to me, why don't you read all the King James? Because the King James doesn't make sense to most people that live in our day and time. The these, the thou's, the therefore, is the what for, is the why, is the all, you know, he that remaineth. You, you think of remains, okay? You don't think of remaineth. Sometimes I mess with people on the Internet. What thinkest thou? You know when I say that? They usually correct my grammar. Okay, so when we talk about who the rock is, the the rock is Christ. It's not some variation of, of a translation of the Bible. The rock is Jesus himself. And so... In this case, they, they bring now two offerings, the burnt offering. And the burnt offering was the offering that was given in total commitment to the Lord. The burnt offering was the offering given in total commitment to the Lord. The peace offering was the offering that was an expression of gratitude. Okay, so you have the one that says total commitment, and the other one says, I'm really grateful that I get to be totally committed. A lot of people don't offer the peace offering. Like, ah, well, I'm okay with the commitment part. 
But you know, I, I'm not so really. I'm not sure I really like all that stuff. I, you know, I'm supposed to now be. It's a picture of the balance of our lives. I have to be totally committed to the Lord, and I have to be at peace with what He says. You have salvation, and you have lordship, and those two things are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. Jesus Christ needs to also be Lord if He is going to be Savior. And so that's the picture here. He says, look, we're going to offer up that which is the total commitment. You're it, God. I serve you and you alone. Only one I serve. And I'm also offering up the peace offering. Look, Lord, I am grateful. Whatever you want to do, I'm just happy to be in your kingdom. You ever met Christians that seem like they're bummed that they're Christians? I have. I have met Christians that when I talk to them, it's like, do you really want to even be saved? Do you even care that you used to be dead in your trespasses and sins, and he has made you alive? It's like, well, you know, i got to do this, and i got to do that, and I, you know, I can't do this, and I, oh, man, and I had to give up that, and oh, Lord, it's just like, oh. And then when you talk to them later, they got zero peace, right? Because their heart's divided. They don't have total commitment. And they're feigning it. And that's why they don't have the peace. They don't make the peace offering. Look, Lord, I'm thankful. You can have all of me. Portion of the meat was given to the priest, another portion of the person who brought it, so they could eat joyfully with his family. They would take it back and say, Our sins are washed away. And I want to live for the Lord. We have to be totally committed to the Lord in order to experience that type of life. Your Bible says that no flesh will ever ever glory in the presence of the Lord. So you don't get to take any of your flesh with you anyway. It's a good idea while you're here on this earth to get rid of as much flesh as you can because none of it goes with. Any of you ever watched the, the show Hoarders? I, I was kind of addicted to hoarders for a while. It's just like I was just stunned. It's like seriously, there's this one show. I don't know if you guys saw it, but there's this one show where they this person collected something on the order of like a hundred thousand McDonald's toys. You know, they just got you know. It's like I don't even know how many Happy Meals that is, but it's a lot of Happy Meals. I mean, we're talking a half million bucks worth of Happy Meals, okay? And, and you look in there. And, and so the, the story is somebody comes and tries to help them overcome this addiction. And they had like 5,000 of every one of them. Oh, we can't throw that away. You know, that completes the collection. What collection? They're Happy Meal toys. You ever met Christians who are hanging on to Happy Meal toys? They're just like, well, it's mine. They shove it over into the corner and guard it with their life. Just, Get away from my stuff. And some of these people, if you watch this show, they freak out over trash being thrown away. There was this one time this lady had literally green ooze coming out of her fridge. And it was horrible. You're looking at it going, oh, I mean, if you had smell-o-vision, it would be bad. And, and so it, you're looking at this and you're going, and there's food in there. And she's going, no, there's still some good stuff. And I'm thinking, what good stuff? Blow the house up. But that's how Christians are. 
well, you know, I might be able to use that someday. You know, if I could just, well, there's, there's, little, there's a little hunk of meat. Connie gets on me because I like cheese, okay? And, and I'm one of those people that, you know, good cheese has mold on it. You just don't eat the mold, okay? You cut the mold off. It's kind of the same thing. Well, if it's good with the mold off, maybe it's still good with the mold on. You're just like, oh, you know, that's kind of the way people look at stuff. Just like, wow. We need to get that stuff out of our lives. We need to stop making monuments to it. And instead, we need to erect a monument to the Lord. And it needs to be living and breathing and part of us. And so Joshua writes the law on the stones. He says, look, I I want to be completely transparent here with God. And so we're going to write the law on these stones so that everyone can see it. And there, verse 32, it says, in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses. Now, so that you understand what he's saying here, He's not talking about just the Ten Commandments. He's talking about the Law of Moses. The Law of Moses included the entire book of Deuteronomy. Okay, All of the laws that were passed down to the people. This was no small task, and this was not a tiny rock. Okay, What they used to do during those times, and actually there are still places in Israel today that you can actually go and see where the law was inscribed on stones, and there will be these large rocks, and they will have written in basically plaster. They would plaster over with limestone. They would take and crush limestone up. It would become almost like a paste. They would cover it, and then they would use normally a charcoal instrument, which would just burn it in the fire, and then write a couple of Hebrew letters from right to left, backwards, according to us. And they would write the law on on these rocks. And so what it was, when they went to worship the Lord, they worshiped the Lord, just as we do, in spirit and in. There's the truth right there. You want to know what God thinks about it? There it is, right there on that rock. Go look it up for yourself. By the way, can I share something with you? Biblical ignorance in our day and time is absurd. Because you can pull out your cell phone, go to Blue Letter Bible and go, oh, it says that. You can type in two words, a search, and go, oh, how many verses are there that talk about love? Hmm. That's a lot. They did not have that then. They took a stick, and they went over to the rock, and they would trace it down. They would start up there with the book of Exodus, part of it there in chapters 19 and 20, and they would follow it along, and they'd come down to the next line, and then they'd go to the next boulder and do the same thing until they found where it was that they were looking. And then they would go, here's what it says. It took E-F-F-O-R-T. Effort. We need to put effort into the Word of God. They copied the law of Moses, which he had written. And then all of Israel, with the elders, the officers, and the judges, stood either on the side of the ark before the priests and the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord and the stranger as well as he was born among them. And half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal. And Moses, a servant of the Lord, had commanded them before that they would bless the people of Israel before these two mountains. And so here we have this 
this picture of the children of Israel seeing this, this pile of rocks on which is written the word of God. It's kind of like the PowerPoint screen. We could put Bible verses up there all day long. We could just actually scroll through it, and there would just be Bible verse after Bible verse after Bible verse. They put the effort into it, and they stood there the whole time. Now, as I shared with you, when we stand for worship, you can sit down if you want. These guys stood for hour after hour after hour. It was not air-conditioned. It was in the Middle East. It was hot. It, it was dry. It was windy. It was dusty. They did not have deodorant. And they stood there and listened to the word of the Lord. Why do I tell you that? Because we're spoiled rotten. We are spoiled rotten. I like it, but we're spoiled rotten. I like the fact that we can throw outlines up on PowerPoint. I love the fact that we can use video clips. I love the fact that you can get a Bible in, you know, if you're, if you're in that place in your life and you like the NIV, read the NIV. I don't care. It's, it's basically a great translation. We have all of these things. These people had boulders with plaster that were written on with pieces of charcoal. And they stood. And someone stood there, normally a scribe, with a stick. And they read the law for hours on end. Because not everybody had a copy of a Bible. They didn't have the old... Nobody. They didn't go, if anybody here doesn't have a Bible, raise your hand. And they, they went and got them one. Okay? That didn't happen. They had to go to the rock to get the Word. See the picture? They had to go to the rock to get the Word. They actually had to go to the Lord to get the Word. That's still the same today. We can have all this technology. We can have smartphones, which I think actually ought to be called dumb phones, because they make whoever owns them dumber, because you start to rely on them. We've got a whole generation of kids now that do not know which way is north. Okay? Just saying. Which way is north? I don't know. Let me get out my phone. The sun comes up that way. It sets that way. That's north. They don't know that. Because of dumb phones. Can't we put a little more effort into our relationship with the Lord? A little more time? Can we stand? We have the Word of God written in our hearts as well. And so as they, they stood there, they, they had these monuments. Remember, there are now four of them. There was one at Gilgal, there's one at Acor, there's one at Ai, and now there's one at Mount Ebal. These monuments to where God had worked in their lives, to where they understood that God had moved in their behalf. And so in relationship to that, the, the people stood. Now I want you to look at this. This is obviously today. This is the modern Arab city of Nablus. You can tell by all the black water tanks on top of all the buildings. This is in the Palestinian-controlled area of Israel. But you have Mount Ebal and Mount Gerizim, and between it, a valley. It's a natural amphitheater. If you actually were to look at it from the air... It's actually a horseshoe-shaped valley at this particular end. 
And if anyone would stand on either of those mountains, and when they were, because when they were quiet, they were quiet. The people stood before the Lord, and as as Joshua spoke, he was literally, as far as they were concerned, speaking for God Himself. And so there was dead silence. And again, just like I showed you in our study when we were talking about the Sea of Galilee, if you stand on either one of these mountains and there is no noise like at night, you can actually shout from one mountain to the other. No problem. People can hear you. That's almost a mile across. Down in that valley were hundreds of thousands of Israelites. And in the middle of that, what is now a city, Nablus, which was then the Old Testament place called Shechem, that's where the Ark of the Covenant was. Remember, that's what Moses did there. He made a covenant with God at Shechem. And so now the Ark of the Covenant's in that valley. The priests, the Levites are with it. The people are gathered around it. And Joshua's on top of Mount Ebal. And he begins to speak. And afterwards, in verse 34, it says he read the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, according to all that is written in the book of the law. And there was, notice this in verse 35, if you've ever wondered why it's very important for us to cover every chapter and every verse, ultimately, for you to study every chapter and every verse, for you to know the entire word of God, all of it, all that is taught in God's word, there was not a word, and actually the translation of those two words is actually a single word. There was not word, one. There was not word, one, of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before the assembly of Israel. Prayerfully, I will be able to say that one day when we have gone fully through the entire Bible. We're working our way that way. I can't say that yet because there are parts we haven't gotten to, but that is our intent and that is what we shall do. And so Joshua is leading the people in understanding fully and completely the totality of all that God had said. He's speaking prophetically to them because God had spoken, and when God has spoken, when you repeat it, you become a prophet. Not talking about a prophet like the weird sense of, well, the dude thinks he's a prophet. When you say what God has said, you are speaking prophetically because God already said it. So those are God's words. You are speaking forth the word of God. That is one aspect of speaking prophetically. With women, oops, remember what I said? There's a couple of things we do here at Calvary Chapel that sometimes I have a tough time with biblically. Oops. The little ones and the strangers who were living among them. You, you see, they stood and they heard the word of the Lord. And the tribes were assigned their places in front of these two particular mountains in this valley. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulon, Dan, Naphtali were at Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing. Simeon, Levi, Judah, Ishakar. The rest of them were on the other mountain, the Mount of Blessing. And the valley between there, that's where... The Levites were with the Ark of the Covenant. What hovered over the Ark of the Covenant? Somebody say it. God himself, the presence of God. Amen? So between the cursings and the blessings is the presence of God. Between being obedient and not being disobedient is the presence of God. Between listening to what God has told us to do and doing it 
and listening to what God told us not to do and not doing it is the presence of God. Putting off the old man, putting on the new man, the presence of God. Nothing's changed. Still the same. And so he speaks from the Mount of Cursing. And I think it's nothing more than saying, look, our propensity is to do the wrong thing. Our flesh is weak at times, isn't it? The things that we think about sometimes don't belong in our heads, amen? And so he's speaking from the, the, the Mount of Cursing. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, you remember what Moses said. He said, see, I'm setting before you today a blessing and a curse. And he actually tells us why. A blessing if you obey the commands and a curse if you are disobedient to the commands. We call that choice. Amen? So when we get to chapter 24, we know why Joshua says what he says. You, you see, he has set before us both mountains. Here's what I'd like you to do. Here's what I don't want you to do. Between them is my presence. This is where I reside. You must do what I've asked you to do, and you must not do what I've asked you not to do. And if you do that, you're going to experience me. He says the same thing to us today. They stood between those two mountains. So the choice is blessing or cursing. You can lean one way or another, and all it takes is disobedience. That's all you got to do. You can be disobedient to the truth, or you can be disobedient to the curses. Choice is yours. I want to be absolutely obedient to the truth, and I absolutely do not want to do what God's told me not to do. And when I do that, I find the center of God's will. I find his presence. I find him as the shade I need. I find him as the light I need. And then that's what happened when they moved the tabernacle through the wilderness. The cloud covered them by day, and the pillar of fire led them by night. So if you want God's presence with you night and day, you need to be obedient to the blessings, and you need to make sure that you're not doing what will get you cursed. Put off the old, put on the new. Christ has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, family of God. And, of course, we're no longer under the law but under grace. Amen. Praise God for that. Praise God for that. I don't want to mislead anybody here. You're not saved because of what you do. But if you are saved, God's the one supposed to tell us what to do. There's supposed to be obedience. And that obedience, shocker, brings us blessing. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I like being blessed. <laughs> and I sure don't like being cursed. I don't want God against me. I want God for me. I want life. I do not want death. And so he says to them, look, after this victory, if you want all these things to go well with your soul, then go to, rock, go to the rock, get the word, do what it says. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thanks for this time tonight. and pray that you just bless us, Lord. Thank you for your word. 
its clarity. Thank you for the transition that happens between the Old Testament and the New, and we understand it, God. You were telling the Jewish people the same thing you told us through Christ, just a different way. Lord, you you gave us a, a window into grace. Lord, you reminded us what it would take to walk in the Spirit, not in the flesh. And so, Lord, we thank you. We, we praise you for your goodness to us. Lord, thanks that you give us abundant blessings. And, and we are most abundantly blessed when we are most obedient. And, Lord, thank you that we have that other side. Lord, it's necessary. We need to know what not to do. Thank you that you've been gracious and kind to show us what not to do. And so, Lord, help us with both areas of our lives. They're both necessary because we really do want your presence. Lord, we want to walk with you. We want you to walk with us. We want you to call us friend. We desire to have your presence in our lives every day. And so, Lord, we bless you. We praise you. We thank you. Lord, continue to bless BBS this week as we have two more days. We pray that you just touch your kids. God, pray that they would fall in love with you. We ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.